Yeah, I'm over that. Yeah, yeah I hear you. Is that Shaq <laughs> or Jordan in the background over your uh, left shoulder? That's MJ. MJ, that's yeah. A... Okay. It's blurry because oh, no, of the, the filter you got. So it's... Yeah, it's supposed to be a certified autographed MJ portrait wow. by Joey Zappella. Um, it's number, I think, 87 of only 750. Uh, Did you hear to... about his uh, latest venture? There's a sporting MJ. company. Yeah, he owns a share in a big sporting company. Uh, Spring something. It's a Swiss-based outfit. Yeah, they're I going public. That. Yeah, and they're valued at like, like eight billion, eight billion bucks yeah. or something. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. You know, so he's done well out of that little investment. Did you watch? Um, uh, did you watch the Last Dance? It's it it a little while ago on Netflix, but did you uh, yeah, it? it's on my. You know how stuff gets added to your watch later list, and you never get to it. It's on there. Oh, you haven't watched it yet. No, not yet. Oh not yet. man, I'm, I'm a Lakers fan. I'm, I'm like, I love MJ, that, it, you know, great. If, if all you're that, a basketball fan, you'll be a fan. I know, of I, know the show. I know, I know, I know. I'll, it's on my list. I will watch it. Um, the light, the last one that came up was um, The Malice at the Palace. Have you seen mm-hmm. that? Insane, that yeah, yeah. You know, Reggie Miller's photo was on it in terms of as the selling point, yeah, yeah. To me, he's a UCLA Bruin, I went to UCLA as well. All right. I did not like him in NBA, man. He was just this annoying little three-point shooter you know, at the Pacers. Why? Because you know? he was good? Yeah. And he didn't play for Lakers. <laughs> so, there's a lot of, there's uh, a lot of uh, greats that didn't play for the Lakers. Yeah, I know, I know, so I know. You appreciate them. But he, he just, you know, he used to uh, he used to get under, what's his name? He had the Knicks number, though. He used to get into Patrick Ewing's skin pretty 31, quickly. 31, yeah. Yeah, he would get into there pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. No, good player, good player. Yeah, I think one of the most... I think Iverson was like super underrated. It's only now I look yeah. back and think how Iverson was just quick, sleek. Yeah. And I, yeah. there's just some highlights I've seen with him against Jordan and he literally cripples Jordan. Just yeah, twists Jordan's ankles. Insane. Very quick. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the age difference too, very quick. But yeah, no, I, I, Iverson was pretty damn good. He didn't last yeah. very long though, did he? Iverson? How long did he play? Yeah, how long did he yeah, play? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. He kind of faded away. Last I heard he was going through bankruptcy. That's that's a fascinating thing about a lot of these yeah. high-profile sports people, right? Like they make a yeah. ton of money, and then Shaq Shaq speaks a lot about this in in a number yeah. of like US podcasts where he talks about how you know he made his first million, and then he didn't realize you got to pay tax on that, this tax, that yeah. tax, and he's buying his yeah. mama car, his dad a car, and, and before then you his, know it, his advisor's like, "You got no money left." He's like, "How do I have no money left, man? I just made a million bucks." Hello and welcome everyone, I'm Robert Baharian and this is Masters in Investing. On this show, I talk to guests about financial markets, the economy, investing and business. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us an awesome review. Let's get into it. My guest today is Banu Singh, Head of Asia Pacific Portfolio Management at Dimensional. Banu is responsible for all portfolios managed out of Dimensional's offices in Australia, Singapore, and Japan. He's also a member of Dimensional's Investment Research Committee and serves as a director for Dimensional Australia. During our conversation today, we talk about mega cap stocks and their future outlook. We talk about the odds of a market correction, marijuana ETFs, and a whole bunch more. Let's get into it. Robert Baharian is the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management, AFSL 526798. The information contained in this podcast may include general advice and does not consider your particular circumstances. You should seek advice from a registered financial advisor who can consider if the general advice is right for you. Banu Singh, welcome to Masters Investing, man. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Robert. Um, Might get straight into it. Um, Markets are at all-time highs, properties, all-time highs. Uh, jobs, all-time lows, interest rates, all-time lows, inflation breaking out at the highest it's ever been for the last however many years, 10 or 15 years. Um, like, what, what, do, what do investors make of all of this? Well, I can't speak about all investors, but um, in my humble opinion, it's par for the course. Markets are forward-looking. So they're looking forward and saying, we've just come out of a pandemic and we're not quite out yet, by the way. Like, 
word about the mm-hmm. Delta variant. I, hopefully there's not another one, but if there is another one, that's even more contagious or something, who knows? But there's still a lot of uncertainty. But I think you're just coming out of a period where economic activity was, activity was much lower. So if you're looking at, for example, the jobs number today, to say, hey, what's economic activity now? And I need to relate that to the market level now. That's a futile exercise, right? Because markets are looking forward to saying, what's going to happen into the future? What's our best estimate of future revenues, future profitability? And based on that, what price does it make sense mm. to pay? Let's talk just overall level of markets. Um, so based on that, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Markets move around a lot. When there's a lot of uncertainty, markets move around quickly. So when March happened, 2020, there was just a huge amount of uncertainty. One thing was clear that this was going to impact economic activity. The problem was nobody knew how much. Nobody knew that you're going to have these worldwide shutdowns and you know carbon emissions at their at the lowest in the last five years, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like pretty serious um, reduction in economic activity. So perhaps that warranted the drop that we saw in forty, you know, 40 percent, depending on which market you mm-hmm. look at. And then you look at just a few months later, vaccines are out. Economic activity in places like U.S. is picking up, um, and that's giving a lot of hope to people to say, "Okay, we're coming out of this thing." Now, you might say, "Hey, we're still getting, you know, Sydney 800 cases a day. We're not out of it yet. Most of the world is not vaccinated, but the mar- that's today, right? That's already priced in. Markets looking forward, going compared to two years ago when we didn't even have a vaccine." had no idea what this thing was going to do. I mean, people forget 1918, we lost 60 million people by some estimates in that flu epidemic, right? So that's maybe one end of the extreme. And so compared to that, things are looking pretty good right now. Mm. We got three, four vaccines they are highly effective, 90 plus. We got a bunch of other ones roaming around at 80 plus. Um, governments are mobilizing to vaccinate people as quickly as they can. There's sort of light at the end of the tunnel. So maybe some of these valuations are justified. The truth is, we don't know what the right level of markets is. So what we see in the markets is our best estimate. And that's how we view the world. Markets are telling you that at this level, they're willing to trade and exchange capital. So they're telling you what their expectations are about the future. And that's that's useful information. The I think it was the S&P 500 that's made like <clears throat> five... Um, five days in a row with all-time highs like last yep. week. And I think if we're on track now, I think the S&P 500 go, will, if, if it continues on the trend that it's currently where we're at today, I think it's going to be the longest streak for the last, I think almost 25, 30 years um, in, in financial markets. Yeah. Um, and we've got all-time highs. We've got, um, We've got uh, profit margins in the S&P 500 as an aggregate at all-time highs. And I spoke with um, Tim Farrelly in, uh, in last week's episode. Yeah. And I was t- we were talking about how in markets, we, or currently we've got um, profits at all-time highs, profit margins at all-time highs, and stock market valuations at all-time highs. It was really interesting. He said, well, that's what you want stocks to do. You want stocks to continue to grow, to continue to make profit and continue to make record um, revenue and record net profits as well. What does that say though, for where we are now? I mean, we're we're pretty high on this, you know, mountaintop, if you like, and we're looking out to the distance and we really can't see what's going on. You make references before about um, markets being forward, forward looking. I mean, that, that's all good and well, but forward-looking what? Next six months, next 12 months, next five years? Like, how do we... Depends on the metric you're looking at. Depends on the metric you're looking at. So you might be a, um, you might be an investor saving for your next down payment on a house and your investment horizon for that investment might be six to 12 months, right? You might be an insurance company hedging out future payments on their products you've underwritten. And that liability might be 10 years. You might be yeah. the endowment fund of a major university where their investment rises 50 years or sovereign wealth fund where it's 50 years. So who knows? It depends on different investors. Now, if you can start you know, talking about, hey, what's my investment horizon? And what do I feel about risk in the market? Then you can say something specific about what you should or should not hold maybe, right? Mm. So if you're that individual who's saving for um, the house, to buy in the next six to 12 months, maybe don't put it in the equity market because that thing swings 30, 40% at times within mm. the space of six months. Maybe not a good idea. Maybe your asset allocation should be a bit more safe because you want that money to be around in 12 mm. months to be able to make the down payment, right? So that's a different scenario. 
But if we're talking things like S&P 500 type aggregate metrics, GDP growth, these type really high level numbers, mm. then it's, it is by definition a mix of all of those investment horizons, all of those different risk tolerances and, and risk um, appetites, whatever you want to call it. And so that's the number you get. That's the problem with looking at market levels. <laughs> you know, it may, it may be very relevant for one individual and not all that relevant for somebody else. So our funds, you know, we're looking forward to say, what is it telling me about expected returns to say stock A versus stock B or fixed income? You know, US curve is looking this attractive versus the UK curve. Where do I go position my fund? Um, we have a long-term investment horizon, but we know, for example, that a month from now, that picture might be very different. Or right? in a week from and now. A, a week from now, a day from now. So the mm. question then is to say, what do I do about it? If the picture is sufficiently different, then it might make sense for me to do a trade, to reposition the portfolio. And we do that every day. But if it's not all that different, then maybe don't do anything. Just, you know, things are as they were. Um, so I... I I think people often get fixated on these high level numbers where the market high level is. And I agree with that point uh, earlier that, you know, that's what you want stocks to do <laughs> as the profits are going up, markets should it's go like up. People are afraid of that. Like when that's happening, well, people are, are afraid of it because the, 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 there's a viewpoint that says, well, if markets have been going up for this long, admittingly, we have had these jolts since the GFC, right? If, I mean, I think we've been in a bull market since the GFC just yeah. with some hurdles along, along the way, quite frankly. I, I just don't yeah. think we've seen these huge, draw, well, we've seen drawdowns, certainly not to the magnitude and certainly not to the duration that we saw since G GFC. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's nothing to say that there should be that pattern. I think in some ways we have been living in that world a little bit. So you, you read a lot of news about how- What's that? We As in, in that, that we should well, have like, that type of pattern? Well, like late 90s, right? Tech boom happened, then it crashed. And then we had a good run from, you know, 2000-ish to 2008, and then that happened. And because of those two events, I feel like sometimes people just have it in the back of their head going, oh, every 10 years or so, we're going to have a crash. Mm. And that may or may not be right, but there's no reason, there's no information in those two events to tell you that the next 10-year number is going to, you know, look a certain way. So it could be that we might as well be on a 30-year sustained bull run. I don't know. It's almost like, you know, week. I, yeah, I think you're right. And you know, if you go to the, when you could go to a casino and you walk the, the roulette tables, for example, if you see a table spinning black, 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 yeah. and you're betting on red, you're like, has to be red. Has, has to, be, to red. be red, right? Those and are black, independent black. variables. They're independent not dependent. variables, right? But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and random. Just, and, and totally random. Yeah. Um, but unless you're thinking about it that way, I think investors look at, don't look at it that way. They look at it as, well, it's gone too long. It, it's been too many spins of black. It has to be red now. It's inevitable. So I'll continue betting until it hits yeah. red. And who knows how yeah. much money you lose betting against that trend, so to speak, even though it's independent yeah. variables, yeah. before you even make any money on that. And I've, I, there's a lot of stuff that I'm sure you're reading as well. There's a lot of commentators talking about the markets done 20% last year. It can't do that again. So be prepared for a, be prepared for a drawdown. Like how much how much validity is in, is in that statement that that these people make? yeah you know there's a whole host of literature around all this stuff because I think some of the stuff you're talking about how you know oh it's been up ten percent a year for the last five years it's there's got to be a negative one it's coming, never it's right? never done this before it's just one of those emotional things where you're trying to make sense of something <laughs> that's totally a random variable um, and you, you tend to attach these sort of patterns I mean for example we have not I shouldn't badger a whole discipline. We have people who follow technical things on charts to say, you know, head and shoulder patterns and all that. There's no evidence that any of that works, but I think it's just looking for patterns where they don't exist. That's natural. People do that all the time. Why do we do that, Banu? Ken Friend says back in the day, you know, if you were walking around the savannah and you thought you saw a shadow on the grass somewhere, the people who said, I think that's a lion run, probably lived, even if, you know, so all the times when it was a lion, they lived. And if you said, no, nah, I don't think that's fine. That's just, you know, wind moving the grass and they died. <laughs> they, got, they got cleaned out out of the gene pool. So that's just funny. Actually, he, he jokes about it. It's just natural tendency for people to do that. But the problem is, you know, let's talk about a couple of things you mentioned earlier. Inflation. You said an all time highs. And I, you know, there has been some data that talks about inflation being high. The challenge is we don't know whether that's transitory 
or permanent. Mm. But you remember GFC? Fed comes yeah, up with that tariff and all that big 800 billion bucks being injected. The next week, everybody's talking, we're going to get hyperinflation. Here comes inflation. Here comes really high interest rates. 13 years later, we're still waiting for those really high inf- interest rates. Right? I mean, the, and, the, the, the headlines were, uh, and I quote, Federal Reserve officials are increasingly worried that inflation is too low and could lead the central bank with less room to maneuver in an economic downturn. It was two years yeah. ago. Yeah. And then so, next and all minute, of a sudden, everything screams inflation. Yeah. So what happened? But that's all fun and games. But if you think about what people did over the last 10 to 15 years post-GFC is they shortened the duration of their fixed income funds. <laughs> rates are going up. So I don't want to go by the 10-year bond because when <laughs> rates go up, the 10-year bond is going to get hit more. Yeah. You know how much money they left on the table over the last 100%. 10 years? So, so my point is, it's all fine until you start saying, do you have evidence to make a bet? Are you going to move your portfolio? Do you have enough evidence to make a portfolio? I'll give you another one, which I think is more like that the roulette example you did, because I think that's apt. So if you look at value growth spreads, so value stocks are stocks that are relatively um, have lower valuations, you know, compared to their peers. Um, I think, you know, Facebook and Google and Netflix in the last 10 years or so, um, Tesla, they're growth stocks, really yeah. high valuations. Value stocks might be things like JP Morgan Chase and, you know, Exxon and things like that. Right. hasn't done well for 30 years. Well, 10-ish years, 30 years has done very well. Uh, we believe in value. It makes a lot of sense that if you pay less for something, all else equal, it should have a higher expected return, as long as you know how to run a portfolio and capture that. All right. Now, the holy grail in that type of investing is figuring out when value is going to do well and when it's not going to do well. Because sure. just like stocks and bonds, stocks don't always beat cash every year. They lose a few years. Nobody goes up in arms going, oh, we had a negative year in equity market. Stocks no longer will deliver better than cash returns because they're riskier. They deliver better than cash returns, right? So everybody goes, yep, that's part of owning stocks. So value growth, we think about it the same way. But let's say you're trying to figure out where, when that switch is going to happen. Value's had a bad run. Same thing as you were saying earlier. Value's performed negatively for five years. It's time for a turnaround. Is that... 10 years, time for a turnaround. We ran all kinds of experiments you can imagine. You don't find anything. There's no patterns, right? Uh, all those runs versus the level of returns and all that don't tell you anything. What you, one of the things that may have a little bit of evidence, but I'll tell you what that really, the problem with that is, is the difference in the valuations between value and growth stocks. When they go super wide, as they were about a year yeah, ago, 100%. two yep. years ago, the, there might be some evidence that says, hey, when they're super wide, going forward, the value premium may be higher. But the problem with that is they can get wider still. People forget 2000 and for end of 2019, value, value and growth spreads were at all-time highs. Value was right. getting crushed. And everybody's like, ah, you know, maybe it's, it's time to kind of sin a little and put a bit more in value. It went ahead and went even wider after that because you have, uh, the uh, March 2020 happened. Right. And so there's no information, but it's similar to going to a casino. So if you went to the casino and you said uh, the odds of the house winning are 51 to 49. So you know how we talk about house always wins, but the games have to be pretty close for you to go and play. If the odds of house winning are 80 and yours are 20, you're never going to go put money in the casino. So let's say they're 51, 49. And there's two scenarios. One, somebody goes in there and makes a million bets. $10 $10 bets, you know, million bets all over. The odds are probably going to work themselves out. It's going to be 51-49. The house is going to win overall. But if somebody goes and puts down 10 million bucks on one bet and the odds are 51-49, the house gets worried, right? Because now the odds are close enough that the person betting 10 million might actually win. Mm-hmm. The 49 might show up because it's only one observation as opposed to a million observations. Sure. So I think with value growth and all these spreads, you might have that little bit of an evidence versus value and growth, but it's not enough to go, I'm going to make one bet. Because they're wide enough maybe every 10 <laughs> years where you look at it and go like, oh, maybe time to make a bet. But you don't have enough information to make one bet. Now, if you could make a million bets, then maybe that's worth it because the odds will work themselves out. So the truth is that all these patterns you see, the news media, they're in the business of hyping up the patterns and because that's how you pick up newspapers. You don't pick up newspapers to say, we don't know anything about what markets are going to do tomorrow. You know, stay diversified, keep your costs low, and listen to your advisor. You know, Although nobody, sometimes I don't know how those do become headlines and they yeah. uh, do make it in the paper, but it's not often. I well, get it. Yeah, but often it's like ASX will do this today. You know, oil price is going to do that today, and then people are like, oh, I need to act. I need to do something, and they pick up the paper. So I think 
we look for patterns as natural tendency, but there's not a lot of information out there that you're able to forecast these type of things. So I, I often get the question when people find out what I do for a living, they're like, oh, what do you think about the markets right now? And I usually say, if you're worried enough that you're looking at the markets every day, you probably shouldn't be in the markets. Mm. Um, because I don't know what's going to happen next week. Think about next 10 years, five years, and you'll be fine. Mm. You know, stick to that approach. But everyday headlines, so... I, I don't know if they have enough information. The, the the example you gave about the guy coming in and placing a million bets or whatever, right? Like I, I get that that over over the, the the number of over that high number of bets, or if you play yeah. for long enough, yeah, that eventually the the odds will work out, like you said. But it yeah. may not be until the last ten bets that you make that yeah. makes it balance up, right? Yeah. But yeah. if I think about that in from an investor's perspective. Maybe just investors can't run that risk, which is, I don't know when I'm going to get the premium, right? I don't know yeah. when I'm going to get a return on, on value. It's sucked for 20 years, right? Yeah. And the evidence, according to me, says is a lousy investment. How long can I sustain my exposure to yeah. get to potentially those last 10 bets? Yeah. And you know, we are an age, Australia's an aging demographic. People can't um, afford to not capture momentum, yeah. let's say, you know, the, we talk about Facebooks of the world and, and, and yeah. Amazons and so on and so forth. People gen- naturally are going to gravitate to that because that's what's been working. And quite frankly, even after all of the gains that were made, people were saying this can't continue. It has continued. And we'll talk, yeah. We'll, yeah. I'd, I'd yeah. love to know your thoughts about that yeah. now, but shortly... But just going back to taking risk on yeah. things like value, sometimes people just can't wait it out. That, that's and you know David Booth says you know whenever he says how many years do you need, and he says one more than you're willing to give. Uh, mm-hmm. That's typically the case. And to that point, now you know just to put things in perspective, when we say value is done poorly, nobody's saying that 100% of your portfolio should be sitting in an Aussie value sure. strategy, right? So if you look at our sort of market-wide strategies like Aussie cores, which are seen as you know one-stop shop for Aussie equities or global equities, even after value had a pretty bad decade, these strategies were pretty close to the market return. Sure. Right. So and why is idea, that? What, what, well, what? because they have other things in there. They have small cap focus. They have profitability mm-hmm. focus. They're doing a bit of our momentum. We pay a lot of attention to trading costs. So those are the things that, you know, um, like trading costs are not the sexy things to talk about. Instead of, instead of me telling you where the rates are going over the next five years, mm-hmm. where the markets are going, let me take you to the minutiae of trading algorithms and how we move <laughs> money around and how we go to different venues and how a bunch of PhDs sit around and try to tweak algorithms so we can save a basis point here and a basis point there. But they add up over time, right? That's not the sexy stuff, but that's really important because this like, because you can control it. You have some control over it. How I design my portfolios, how I manage them, how I trade them. I have some control to say, if I do things this way, I'm generally going to have a lower cost than if I didn't pay attention to that. In my opinion, that's like, that should be the bread and butter of every asset investor manager, asset manager, because these are things that you have some control over. Where the market's going tomorrow, I don't have control over that. Mm. So there I can design portfolios to keep risk in mind, to make sure they're well diversified and make sure I'm invested the right way. So when the premiums do show up, I pick them up, right? And that's to your point about, yes, value didn't show up, but small cap showed up from time to time. And value wasn't negative every year. There were plenty of years when value was positive. It's just over the overall period, it didn't do well. Profitability showed up time to time. So you pick that up, paid attention to momentum. So all those things added up to keep the portfolios very close to the market. So if you think about it from that perspective, to say some investor 10 years ago decided to buy a market-wide portfolio that looked different than the market, because you have to look different than the market to do better than the market. You can't hold the market and somehow magically do better than the market. That looked different than the market, which is a risk. You're saying, I'm going to hold something different than what the market is. And hopefully, I earn a return for that. And if I don't, then I want to minimize how bad that outcome is in that scenario. So in this case, because they're well diversified, because they have other things they're relying on, if one thing doesn't show up, then the portfolio still does relatively okay. Now, if those things do show up, then the portfolio does really well. So that's great. So, you know, it's it's being smart about it. Nobody's saying put all your money into a small value strategy um, because I wouldn't recommend that for most people. Uh, that's too risky, right? Mm. And, and then the second piece is, I think one of the ways it becomes an issue when market has a good run, you, know, you probably know this better than me, a lot of people don't rebalance. 
Mm. You started out with a 70-30 portfolio in 2001. And by the time 2008 arrived, you were sitting on a 90-10. Because yeah. equities had a run. And you were like, ooh, I don't know if I want to rebalance because they're running, let them run. Mm. But you had a 70-30 for a reason. Because that was sort of the level of risk that you were willing to take. But then it ran to 90-10 and you didn't rebalance. So when the hit came, it came a lot harder than if you had perhaps moved to a 60-40. Because 10 years later, maybe you have less of a risk appetite. So there's yeah. a lot of other things that are more important, I think, than getting the level of the market right over the next week or two. What do you think is the optimal level of rebalancing? So you talk about these asset allocation mixes, yeah. which I think takes a lot of time and effort and thought to craft appropriately for one individual's yeah. personal priorities and objectives. And whether it's an individual, a family, or a, an endowment, it's yeah. the, 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 the thought process is the same. Yeah, uh, and you've got your portfolio. You're starting to now. You're on a, a 50-50, and now you're sixty forty in the wrong way, or whatever the case may yeah. be. Yeah, Like, what's the has Dimensional done any research around what the optimal um, frequency of rebalancing is, and at what threshold? So a lot of people yeah. talk about a ten percent threshold. Um, you know, if you listen to research affiliates, Rob Arnott talks about. Uh, momentum and if you rebalance too frequently you lose a momentum factor as well yeah um, what's like what's what's Barnu's point of view on that or the dimensionals uh, to me like look um, costs are an input into that so if it costs you a lot to rebalance that's obviously something that you keep in mind but to me it, it's there's no one-stop shop for anyone to your point it takes a lot of work to get to that asset allocation of one person uh, so to me it's like as long as it doesn't, it's not cost prohibitive, rebalance when it makes sense. So um, I don't know why it makes sense to people to say, when I did my allocation, it was 60-40, but now somehow I'm okay with the 70-30, right? That to me, it's just like, well, you were at 60-40 for a reason. 70-30 seemed too risky to you. That's why you went to 60-40. So why? Because you've had a bit of a run in the markets. You're right. Because of 70-30. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then by the way, why if equities done poorly, like at the end of March last year, a 70-30 portfolio might be looking more like a 50-50. Why would you not go back to a 70-30, right? Because your bonds have done the job that they were supposed to do. They held up really well during that crisis. Equities went down, load up, go back to 70-30. You were happy taking that risk two days ago or two weeks ago. Why are you any different today? Now, something might have changed in the circumstances. That's different. But if nothing has changed, so to me, those... Asset allocations are fairly slow moving over time. A person doesn't wake up one day, and for the most part, and go from a 70-30 investor to a 40-60 investor, right? So, so to me, that, that asset allocation should be revised at some sort of a pre-agreed upon basis mm -hmm. just to kind of see, does this still apply to me? Now, when it comes to actually the technical piece of how often do you rebalance, we look at these funds and we rebalance them when it makes sense, so every single day. But that's because we might have some money coming in that day, money going out, that allows us to rebalance. Sure. Um, but uh, for the for most investors, that's not practical, right? To do that every single day. So I think if you use like a quarterly or a semi-annual or annual thing, it might have small effects, but it's not, overall, it's not the end of the world as long as you look at it on some sort of a relatively frequent basis, keeping cost in mind. You don't want to live run for five years and get it out of whack completely. I think that's when you get into trouble. Yeah, I think you get into trouble with that. Uh, although if you let it run, uh, letting momentum run over the last five or 10 years might have been a good thing. Uh, hindsight, of, Robert. Hindsight. Uh, 100%. And, uh, 100%. <laughs> yeah, hindsight. I, I think, this is where you get Don't do it and don't think about it that way is because there's not enough conviction or thought put around the the foundations, which is the de the development, the design of the of the yeah. of the asset allocation. So if yeah. you don't give any regard for that whatsoever, why should you give any regard for if it's gone from a sixty forty to a seventy thirty? Who cares? Absolutely, absolutely. If you can explain to me why you were at sixty forty in the first place, why would you say that you shouldn't be at seventy thirty or fifty fifty? So I think that's absolutely right. I think how you come up with the sixty forty in the first place. Is is crucial because those same sort of that same framework you're going to use going forward to say, hey, look, in that framework, these things have changed now. You know, maybe you're ten years closer to retirement, or you have decided to retire early, and therefore we need to start taking some of the risk off the table, and you know, whatever. But that framework is crucial, getting it right. I think often the last part I'll add is when people get into mechanical rules around these things, that's when you know they're useful to have some thresholds to say, for example, mean? if. You know, you were saying, you know, if you hit 
X rebalance, you know. So we'll oh, like we're looking for example once a year. Yeah. yeah. So what we'll do is things like you know, because they all come with relatively different levels of importance. So to me, for for example, that equity fixed split is far more important than Australia versus developed ex Australia split. Yeah, right. Because agree with those are very different asset classes. Sure. So if you don't have that right, so if all of a sudden you go from 16 equities to 70, that's a big problem for me. But if you go from 30 in Australia to 35 in Australia, that's not the end of the world because I don't have any information about expected returns in Australia versus Europe, for example. They're so noisy, but I can't tell you whether Australia is going to do better next year than, than US or Europe. So, you know, unless you got some tax reasons or something that really mm. you need to be at that number. Um, if you let that run a little bit, not the end of the world. Um, but that equity fixed split or, hey, all of a sudden I've gone from one year in duration to six years in duration. That's more volatility. And I'm in retirement. I don't want volatility. So things that are important to you, pay attention to those. They should be higher priority than things that are not as important. So mechanical models tend to come up with, you know, here's the ranges for everything and they're very mechanical. And that tends to sometimes lead to more turnover for no reason, because you're hitting some artificial limit and you're rebalancing. You know, yeah, like your Australian you equity exposure is 30%, you've gone to 35 yeah. and it's greater than 10% allocation, you've rebalanced back down. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and what you're saying is there's, there's no information that's available that would... Um, Make sense for you to sell down your Aussie equities and bump up your emerging. I mean, markets. you should do it anyway because that's the sort of the level you agreed to. Um, but it's not nearly as important as that seventy thirty split up top mm. between equity and fixed. So I think it's just you know pay attention to the things that um, matter more than mm. others, and they're not all the same. And often people get carried away by. I have a 5% allocation to emerging markets and it did this last year and I'm not really happy about it. Their overall portfolio might be up 20% for the year. And it's mm. like, well, that's part of holding a well-diversified portfolio. Some pieces will do well sometimes, other pieces might not. But overall, are you still on track for that goal that you were aiming for? And if you are, then we're good. You know, mm. don't don't react to things that are not that important. Can we talk or about noise. can we talk about um drift and asset allocation. And so if we look at some of the, and this is very US centric, like you look at some numbers that I'm looking at here, you've got Apple, Microsoft, uh, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, yeah. uh, et cetera. In fact, I think like five of those companies are now in the $1 trillion club plus. Yeah. Like Apple sitting at two two and a half trillion dollar market cap. You've got Microsoft at 2.2 trillion. You've got Alphabet at 1.8. Like, it was almost like, you know, the first company that hit a trillion dollars was going to be, um, well, no one had done it before, but yeah. now it's kind of becoming this, this normal thing. And we're seeing um, exposed, we're seeing uh, allocations in, in portfolios or a desire to move allocations more and more into this space. Yeah. Um, very technology heavy. Um, and I guess the question for me is, when this happens, I get that it doesn't last forever. Mm -hmm. And people talk about, and you read headlines and you read articles that talk about the fact that, you know, you've got five or 10 companies that make up 30% of the S&P 500 market capitalization. Yeah. Which sounds scary, but then you look at the Australian market, we've been living there <laughs> for the last 40 years, which is, I find yeah. it bizarre that people spend so much time talking about it in the US, but you kind of look in your own backyard and you've got two companies making up 20% of the market cap, which is insane. Um, so I get my question. And they're really old companies too. 100%, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, and so just thinking through when we talk, when we look at um, super heavy weightings towards large cap stocks like this, um, how long do these things typically typically last? Because there's, I just can't, I just can't see how these companies can continue to grow at the rate and the pace they've been growing to what's got them here to this point in yeah. time. And if yeah. the market, to your point before, is forward looking, well, yeah. it 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 the market the market and market participants think that these companies are going to continue to keep doing what they've been doing. The earnings are going to continue to grow. The profit margin is going to continue to grow from what got them from zero to now. I, 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 like I'm yeah. just, any, any insight. It's hard to imagine. To yeah. 
Yeah, look, uh, you know, the profits of these companies are quite high. They're some of the most profitable companies in the world as well. So I think some of those, so if you look at the last 15 odd years or so, and you look at um, the returns on these companies, and I'm going to use them to approximate returns on growth stocks, let's say, is is one way of saying it. Um, they've been phenomenal. They've done like, you know, 15% a year, 10, 14, 15% a year, when the overall market's done 10 plus. So value stocks have done 10% a year, which is actually what they've done historically long-term. So it's not that value's done poorly. It's just these companies have shot the lights comparison. out. Yeah, these companies have shot the lights out mm. uh, compared to what they've done historically. So you might say, you know, that can't continue. Now, I, I would agree they're growth stocks, so they should have lower expected returns going forward. They're mega caps, so they should have lower expected returns going forward than a mid cap or a small cap stock. So across the board in these very, very large companies, we're underweight across all our portfolios. And Banu, just, just before you go on, that's because the higher the price you pay for something, the lower your expected return. Yeah, all else equal, right? All else, yeah, 100%, all else equal. What, what helps you in that in some ways, for example, you like Apple a bit more than, let's say, Netflix, right? Because that high price of Apple is on the other side of that is cash flows. So, right, valuation equation is price is cash flows discounted back, right? So, the lower price you pay, the higher that discount rate should be, right? That what you're dividing by. Um, but if you have lots of profits, then that lower high price might be justified, right? So, you you might be willing to pay for Apple what the Apple trade is, um, stock is trading at because it's got tons of profit. So the discount rate being implied by those profits and the price is actually relatively reasonable. It's high. Now, the situation where you have no profits to speak of, think, you know, Tesla or Netflix, um, Afterpay, um, and they got bought out. So they, that's not a story anymore. Yeah, but that doesn't but, stop the share price from going up. doesn't stop people exactly. from participating in that. And doesn't so, stop people from making money. Yeah, so we so can what sit that, here in theory and talk about this is what's supposed to happen in theory. Yep. yep. But so, we're, so let we're me, living in. Yeah. Let me translate to, to the sure. practice. Um, so if the price is really high and there's no profits to speak of, what that's telling you is that there's very little discount rate. So the expected return is really low. Now, what could be happening there is investors are projecting much higher profits into the future, right? Which is fair enough. That's like if you know, if you believe the the hype, they be worth trillions and trillions because every car will be electric and it'll all be Tesla. So we don't know. So investors might be projecting really high profits into the future. The problem is being having a good estimate of those future profits, which hard to do. Um, but given all that, that discount rate that the market's selling you is pretty useful information. Now, that doesn't mean that that's a guaranteed discount rate, right? Just because value stocks are trading cheap, or at low multiples, so the discount rate's high, it doesn't mean you're gonna get that discount rate tomorrow. Mm. You know, they might get cheaper still, they might drop further mm. more. Or whatever profits they have might not show up tomorrow, even be even lower. So the discount rate was more than justified. Same thing on the growth side. Tesla might actually generate a ton of profits in the next five years. And therefore the price was justified. So there's a level of uncertainty associated with all of it, right? But the point here is to say you're building a portfolio. You know, you're deploying capital. You're looking forward going, what's a good portfolio to build if I want to outperform based on how valuation works, based on what the empirics are showing you, based on what practically when you think about makes sense, you want to underweight some of these companies because they are growth and they're mega caps. Some of them you want to underweight a bit more than others because they don't have any profits to speak of. So we actually look at the relative weight in Apple versus, you know, Facebook or Google. Um, or Netflix for that matter, like Apple's at a similar level of valuation to Netflix, but has a ton more profits. So our underweight to Apple is a lot less than relatively speaking than something like Netflix or Tesla. So you do take these things into account and then you're working on expectations and you're absolutely right. I can build the best theoretical portfolio that I can think about, invest it, you know, cost efficient manner, actually hold a real life portfolio on expectation. I should expect these premiums to show up every single day. But in reality, when I look backwards, Yes, over the long term, they're paid off, but day by day, you know, and if you miss one good day, it can have a huge impact on you. That's right. You know, so the only way to get it is to stay invested and stay disciplined and stay focused and ride out the rough times. Um, You know, otherwise you don't earn the good times. And then if we look at some of the companies and where they're uh, listed, so a lot of most, if not all these companies are US listed. And so if we look at the US Stock market. You said before that you're not too, you wouldn't get 
you think it's less important, and I, I don't disagree with you, less important about the geographical allocation when compared to the risky defensive yep. Yep. allocation. Yeah. And so if you had, not that, not that I don't think a lot of people have no exposure to the US. Yeah. Um, if you've been underweight US, you've been underperforming. Man, it's been hurting. Yeah. And, and how long can you continue to, to accept that? And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and conversely, um, you look at Australia, it's a super concentrated market. It's what, 2%, maybe even less now of market, market yeah. cap capitalization. Yeah. You've got um, Europe that continues to remain a bit unstable. Um, and if we're talking about instability, you look at Asia and, and the, the intervention that government can have on stock prices there, which we saw not that long ago in, in some of the tech stocks. Yep. Like, why would you not just plow into the US market? I, I'll change. I agree with you. One of the things that I still don't understand is the level of home bias Australians have. Uh, when I first came to this country in 2010, it was fairly the norm to see 70 Were you in the US before that? Yeah, I was in the US before that. So it's it's fairly the norm, was the norm at the time to see like a 60, 70% equity allocation to Australia. So you had $100 in stock, 60, 70 of that was in Aussie equities. And, you know, that it just was mind boggling because uh, you left out tons of industries that the rest of the world had. And people made excuses like, oh, if I own BHP in Rio, I have emerging market exposure because they sell iron ore to China. And I'm like, would you rather get your emerging market exposure from two stocks? Would you get it from 5,000 stocks? It just doesn't make sense to me that you would mm -hmm. want it out of two stocks because companies can do stupid things. We've seen Rio do some dumb things lately. Uh, and sure. So, you know, that's a risk that you shouldn't get compensated for because you had too much money in Rio. So uh, nothing wrong with Rio as a company overall, just, you know, but the point is you want diversification when you can get it. Now, emerging markets are more expensive to invest in. So I get that. So you take that into account. But yeah, no, I completely agree in terms of opportunities available, um, different sectors doing well in different areas, different consumers in different economies, real economies, so on and so forth. Our view is that the best starting place is the market itself, right? You start with market level allocations. And what that would mean is 2% allocation to Australia. I know that sounds really <laughs> important to everybody. I see you laughed out loud. I know that's the reaction I get every time. And so that's the starting allocation. And then you move away from that to say, I want to look different than that for good reasons, right? And mm. so good reasons might be I get franking credits in Australia. Um, foreign investments are a bit you know, expensive compared to Aussie only. Uh, there's exchange rate risk I don't like. Or frankly, I just don't like it. And, and I know that shouldn't be a good enough reason, but I think one of the biggest challenges we have is investors staying disciplined and sticking with their investments. So I say that if having a, I don't know, a 40% allocation to Australia mm. means somebody's going to feel good about their portfolio and stick with it, then that may be a worthwhile trade-off, mm. right? Um, I would say maybe 20%. <laughs> you know, I, I am a, what, a bit hopeful that the number I said 10 years ago, 60, 70% these days seems to be more like 40, 50%. What do you so think I the think, number should be, Banu? For... I don't know. I think it, so for somebody in retirement uh, with a zero tax rate, uh, franking credits are worth the most to them compared to somebody else who has a decent, you know, high income tax rate. Mm. Um, maybe they have you know, 40, 50% allocation to Australia, uh, maybe more because the, the the tax credits are really worth uh, a lot to them. But for somebody who's not really taking advantage of those tax credits, I don't know, 20%, 15, mm. 20%. I mean, um, who gives a shit about tax credits when US stock market has returned multiples that of Australian stock market? Hindsight, so Robert, hindsight. What if US market crashes tomorrow and you had a full allocation to US, you're going, see, I told you should have been overweight Australia. I, I'm you know, pretty sure just... the Aussie market would follow very closely. Uh, well, well, historically speaking, Aussie market is one of the best markets ever. Like, you know, it's had one of the best returns globally, historically We're speaking. We're an emerging but, market, aren't we, Banu? Oh, in some ways we may <laughs> be. But but the point is like, if you if you look at that from a hindsight bias, then people were like, yeah, look, that bet's paid off. Mm. Having an overweight to Australia has been a very good thing. Now, you don't want to be driving looking in the rear view mirror. Uh, I think that, previous bet doesn't tell you anything about the future. Mm. So I think my prior would be that you have a much lower, like in our funds, we have Australia at about 35%, mm. you know, which is fairly low compared to most other balanced funds out there. Um, and that was a number that we just sort of said, you know, what will, uh, it's, it's a 
compromise between staying well diversified and not being too concentrated in the portfolio in Australian companies and managing client expectations. Now, the second piece that, pardon me, that works in our favor is most of our funds are underweight mega caps. As I said earlier, we mm. think the low expected returns. So some of the cost concentration issues are sort of somewhat reduced. But if you hold just like a simple Australian market at 60%, you have more money in CBA. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still true. You have more money in CBA than all of emerging markets. Just think about that. You have more money in one bank in Australia with a population of 20 million and 2.3% of the market cap than about 30% of the global GDP. Yeah, it's... And I, I think I think it's come, I mean, I'm sure when you look at the US, and I think there's been studies done on this, wherever your home is, you have a bias to your home. And yeah. I don't know, maybe yeah. it's it's familiarity, maybe it's the fact that accessing offshore markets 15 years ago, I mean, it wasn't easy. Time, you couldn't do it. And the yeah, only thing you easy. could do, and this business that financial advisors and stockbrokers and any finance person was in was to sell people stocks. People still do that. It's insane. I don't understand why yep. people still do it. Yep. Yep. But there are still millions and millions and millions of dollars that are being invested that way, buying yep. Amcor, selling Amcor. Like, and the narratives that go with some of this stuff, it's, I, I'm genuinely perplexed as to how people still buy into this. Oh, look, uh, you know, a uh, lot, lot goes into that. Uh, finances are a very emotional topic for people. Mm. Um, so I have often met people who view st the stock market as uh, a get-rich-quick scheme. They approach it with that mentality. Sure. That if I just get a couple of calls right, I'm going to put in a few hundred thousand dollars and I'll be set. You know, it's going to be the end of all my troubles. Sounds a lot like I'm going to go put that money on black and see what happens, right? You should have Bitcoin uh, at $10,000, right? <laughs> well, see, the problem is, okay, you know, you have your videos on YouTube. Um, you have social media. I, I was, I forget what I was watching something. It was a long video. And there were like these ads in the middle. Every single ad was some bloke on TV telling me how he could teach me how to trade Forex. Uh, how he could tell me how to go in and out of Bitcoin at the was right Was it a 19-year-old sitting on a Ferrari? No, it's actually gray hair and everything. <laughs> yeah, there was one 19-year-old with a yellow Ferrari, but there was a dude with the gray hair looked very reasonable and trustworthy. Uh, but my point is like, you know, imagine if you're doing a bit tough, you have a tough life, finances are not that easy, and some person tells you, and everybody worries about money at some point, some person yeah, tells you, you, you know, just, just listen to me and I'll get you out of this. I had people prey on, on people that way. So I think that's the danger there. And that's why people often end up making these kind of decisions. But then again, I, I take hope that compared to where we were 20 years ago, Robert, I, to your point, international markets are now accessible. Um, a lot of the it, access it's to- Almost nothing. It costs you nothing. Yeah. A lot of this has just been democratized, you know, in the sense that you can just log on and buy an ETF or, you know, buy an mm. index fund fairly reasonably. Um, and so I think- and what we really need, personally speaking, is a lot more education at the high school level on these things. I think a lot of people graduate uh, high school or universities without knowing very little about financial markets. And they go into super the very first day they start a job hmm. without knowing what, what they have to do with the and money. And they've got with choice super. with super now, right? It's exactly. Like, and how do you make choice in, with something yeah. you don't understand? So, so I think that education is the key. Uh, more educated you can be about these things, the less bad decisions you make here. But yeah, no, I can totally see how people prey on these things, man. Um, and But then or even going back to the home bias, I mean, like I said, because of things like international markets are easier to access, people are a bit more educated, they're a bit more, you know, listening about how to take care of their money. Um, the home bias number is dropping. You know, it is down to 50-ish, mm. 40-ish percent. And I think Hopefully, we continue to see that dropping down to you know tens and twenties would be where I would say eventually people need to get. To. Yeah, I think um, it's a, I think it's a, it's an evolution. It'll take time, um, and I think also in the financial advice or financial and wealth management uh, industry, the investment game is being democratized by systematic investing, um, yep. robo massive advice, investing. Yeah. massive investing. Yeah. People are becoming more and more aware that they don't have to play that game that maybe yeah. mum and dad or grandma and grandpa used to have to play with their stocks yeah. and that there is a very different way of doing it. But I think there's a clash there in our industry where 
there is a cohort that that is their value, the value add or what they hang their hat on is their ability to be able to short Amcor and go long BHP. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think that will eventually take its time to, to again, evolve from yeah. what's valuable and what is less um, valuable. But I, I never thought about the people's circumstances being influenced by, you said, people preying on that. Uh, I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, look, I, you know, I, I get plenty of my friends calling me saying, you know, they're in that stage of their lives, they're mid, middle age, they've got a couple of kids, and mm. they're thinking about putting some money away, the houses, you know, they're making the mortgage payments, and they need to start, what should I do with it? Uh, you know, and, and I often tell them, well, diversified, set and forget, don't so, look at it every day. what they want to hear, though. Yeah, just, know, on, know, just on that, actually, like... For people that are investing, you know, there's so much out there. There are thousands upon thousands of investment opportunities out there. Um, we we see new number of them either knocking on our door or yeah. get flooded with emails of performance figures. And man, some of these guys are even flouting performance figures when they're underperforming their own benchmarks. Like it's just the most mind-boggling thing I ever see. Millions yeah. of dollars of still flowing into these things. Um, you've got um, performance fees for uh, investment managers to perform on the upside, but hey, nothing goes wrong when you when you when you yeah. when you lose money on the downside. Like, what should people be doing, Banu? Like, what advice would you give to people when they're looking at investing and uh, the types of investments they should look at? What yeah. should they be keeping an eye out for? What's some of your your Banu's top tips? Uh, yeah, look, I, I think for most 99% of the people, I would say um, diversification is your friend. Anything too concentrated, stay away from it. That's my general rule. If you don't understand it, if it doesn't make sense to you. Um, but who really understands it. this stuff? Come on. Look, like, I, really? I tell you, I, well, let's go back to 2008. Hey, I've got this, you know, good as gold, AAA rated mortgage backed security yielding 3% more than if you put your money in the bank. And your bank is AAA rated gold, you know, blah, True. blah, blah, or US treasuries, you know, backed by Uncle Sam, go buy that. And this one, just as risky as US treasuries, you're getting 3% more. You know, uh, where's the catch? Like, why am I getting so much more for taking no I risk? I just don't at all? think the average person thinks about it that fair way. Fair enough. Though. Fair to enough. To your point, like why, the education is. And I think that's why the diversification is usually a good bet, you know, well diversified. Index is probably, I, I hate to say it this way because, you know, we're not, indices have their issues, right? But I think their positives are a lot better than holding concentrated single stock portfolios or hybrid securities and some property scheme somewhere and get rich quick scheme. So if you just go put money into a global equity index or a global 60-40, you're 90% of the way there, right? Well, what about you get these there, guys that come to you with, you know, we are a investment manager. We actively buy and sell sovereign bonds, and we corporate gov corporate bonds. We do this, we do that, and hey, look at our performance! Like you, you're not even beating your own benchmark. Yeah, I mean, to your point, most people don't know what that benchmark even means. Um, so I, I hear you. I think for the, at the professional level, it's 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 challenging enough to ascertain the drivers of performance of a manager at a professional level. So somebody like yourself, 100%. I can throw enough numbers at you to confuse you on any performance metric, right? You'll be like, oh, well, I see what I mean, but maybe it's this and maybe it's that. And so numbers never answer it. So I, I, I think that's why it's challenging enough at that level, let alone a retail mom and pop level where they're looking at all these hundreds and hundreds of ETFs and products out there or whatever you want to call it to say, which one should I buy? And that's why I think start simple and then go from there, take time to, understand what you're buying. Performance fees are a good one to your point. You know, it creates incentives for managers to take risk, right? So what's your, if you're looking for upside, your best friend is volatility, right? You just swing the bat. And if it, you get lucky, you get paid a ton of money. And if you're unlucky, you put the watermark in and then you shut down the fund three years later and you walk away from it, right? Um, so you don't really pay anything. You've collected your base fee already, which tends to be high with performance fees, 2% or whatever. You, you're still collecting that no matter what you're doing. But the performance fee, if you don't earn it, no big deal, to your point. You kind of reset the watermark. And if you don't look like you're going to come back up to it, you just shut down the fund and shut walk down. away. But if you get lucky, here comes the Ferrari, right? So 
I think that's why incentive performance fees at, at a theoretical level make a lot of sense. Hey, you're aligned with my performance, but I think they might create incentives for people where they try to swing the bat too much because they know the upside is a lot higher than the downside. So maybe you don't want that with within uh, with your asset. But presumably managers. some people would want that because that's why they're investing because they're taking on risk and they want someone that's aligned with that same objective, right? Possibly, but if they get to walk away from it and you get you are left holding the bag. Yeah. So I and and I think they're the and the second piece of that is often those type of strategies tend to be quite opaque. They tend to be, you know, things that don't trade a lot. Uh, so it's very difficult for you to see what's going on in the fund. They often won't tell you. So I think if you are aligning somebody like that, you want transparency a little bit as well, which is usually the opposite. So it's figuring out invest, investment manager performance is a pretty difficult topic to begin with. And that's mm -hmm. why I think, you know, having broad market, well-diversified strategies, which can be pretty easily benchmarked to, something like the ASX 300 or the MSCI world type indices makes it somewhat easier at least for people to say, okay, if I could just put my money in the market index, I earned X and I can see what my manager is doing. If they're earning more than X or less than X, then I know their performance is pretty straightforward. Mm. Um, but the, the more complicated, the more concentrated the product is, the, it's more difficult to assess why the manager is doing what it's doing. Yeah. So if they do really well, what did they do well? If they do really poorly, what did they do poorly? So it's not an easy task. So I would say if you if you can afford it, go get an advisor. <laughs> but if you can't, <laughs> you know, the general rule would, would be to go towards more diversified, transparent strategies that you understand what's going on there. Go buy a diversified index fund as, mu as much as you probably don't want to hear me saying that either. Uh, no, I get it. You know, when, the easiest thing, right? In US, we've got a bunch of ETFs launching this year and uh, we launched a bunch of them. We will be launching more there in the near future. So I think now I can say, Australia? Uh, we're looking at it. Uh, don't know yet. If you have a lot of demand for it, let me know. We'll, we'll, we're taking a close look at it. Australia is good because there's a structure that allows you to launch them without having to launch a new strategy, right? So you can take your Australian core, sure. launch an ETF wrapper, and you don't need to launch a new fund. So it's relatively straightforward, but mm. I, you know, dimensional, we don't launch, launch strategies for the sake of launching them. We're often led by our clients. So, you know, if there are clients who come to us and saying, we really want ETFs, like, you know, so we'll take a close look. Yeah. Um, but for now, we're just trying to figure out what the operational setup is and all that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it is interesting because the number of ETFs, and there's a lot of providers now um, that, you know, can set up ETFs really quick. They get yeah. fund flow really quick. So you can go buy an, a marijuana stock portfolio ETF. You go buy a... Yeah, know, a cybersecurity ETF or a tech ETF, whatever it is, right? You can go do these things. And, you know, even when we talk to uh, a lot of younger folk, like kids of clients and stuff like that, they're like, hey, man, I want to buy this marijuana ETF. What do you reckon? I'm like, I've got no idea, man. Like, I've got no <laughs> it's idea. no different than picking stocks. You're just picking themes or sectors. And often it's, it's hard. It's just as complicated as trying to pick stocks, to be honest. You know? uh, yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah. And generally, the advice we give is, why don't you just start with a real good core portfolio that is just had broad market, Australia, international property. Yeah. Just get a nice broad market and then go take some punts, man. If you want to go take some punts on marijuana stocks and yeah. uh, an ETF, go do it. Yeah. Yeah. But don't try and design a portfolio with, you know, 15% in the marijuana ETF, 25% in the chip maker ETF. Like I just yeah. think that's um, that it might, it might work out, but I just, I just think you're going to kind of need to build your foundations and get those right first. I'm not yeah. saying don't, don't do that stuff. Go do it, scratch that itch, but you got to make sure the foundation's right. I think. Yeah, understand that it's on the margins and not the core of your fund, right? Yeah. So I, I think that's the difference between doing that full on versus I've got my investments here, which are going to really harness that power of compounding over time. I'm young. I, best thing you can do is start investing right away, right? So put a bit of money away, markets, let them grow over time. But if you want to scratch the itch, like you said, on the side, then yeah, go do something. But don't make that the biggest thing in your portfolio. And if you yeah. get lucky, great. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if you don't, you're not going to lose your shirt over it. So that's yeah. okay. And, and, and don't turn around and point the finger and say, and say I told you so. <laughs> well, it, there was a, there's a great podcast called Econ Talk um, by Russ Roberts. And, uh, and he had uh, Fama on there. Gene Fama, oh, yeah. and uh, this is a few years ago, five, six years ago. And, you know, Fama's father of modern finance, mar market efficiency, and this and that. And Russ made a statement, which he was like, you know, Fama, the, the, Gene, the problem is you've got this 60, 70 years of body of work, right? Mm -hmm. 
so thorough, so meticulous. You won't, he had won the Nobel Prize then, but he went on to win one. I'm like, just guys, as good as you can get as an empiricist, as a, as a finance guy. And he goes, some dude gets lucky one year and he says, all that is useless. You know, the markets are noisy. Distribution of outcomes is super wide. The, somebody could be just fully punting, make 70% of that year and be like, see, markets are not efficient. Look at me. I made 70% this year. Yeah. But that's, you know, again, the distribution of outcomes you're bound to get some people getting lucky like that, right? But that doesn't mean the whole discipline goes out the window. And that's the challenge with our markets. Somebody gets that, they go talk about it. Everybody else goes, I think I can do that too. And then they go take those puns and lose their money. So yeah, no, no one sits there saying, hey, I, I reckon I can extract the tooth from you or undertake open heart surgery. Like, yeah. it, it's just one of those <laughs> yeah. industry. And I think finance and sports are very similar to the extent yeah. that you don't have to actually be a professional or an expert. You can just to comment on it. Yeah. You can just have an opinion. Right? Yeah. And people yeah. take your opinion really, serious? really seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think it's yeah. just one of few um, industries that you can kind of have that um, unlike those other industries that I've talked about. My wrap yeah. it up, man. Banu, I appreciate oh. your time. Um, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure, Robert. Thanks, thanks for having me. <laughs>